Please turn with me to the book of Psalm, chapter 88, verses 1 through 18. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, who, who you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? For my youth, I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. This is the word of God. Now, um, you need to know that just about every psalm, even if the writer, the author is suffering, these psalms always end with hope. Let me give you an example. In Psalm chapter 22, the actual psalm begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet even that psalm ends with hope. What the psalmist says there, the poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of all the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. You see that? It ends in hope. But not this psalm that we read today. We just read it. In fact, Psalm 88 is only one of two psalms in all the 150 psalms that are in the Bible that ends with no hope. There's just complete darkness. And through that, if you're new or visiting, we've been walking through uh, passages throughout the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, to show you, to see that God does not work despite our sin and our suffering and our brokenness and our death, but through our sin and suffering and brokenness and death, which brings tremendous meaning then to our life experiences and our suffering and our sinfulness and our guilt and our shame. And what we're gonna see through that, that's how God works. He, that's how God demonstrates his power. That's how God demonstrates his strength and his redemptive plan. And today we're gonna see three things about navigating these dark periods in our lives. We all go through it. One, what does it mean to be in darkness? Two, what do we learn from it? What are the lessons from that? And lastly, how do you apply those lessons? What is darkness? What do you learn from it? How do you apply it? First, <clears throat> we're gonna look at what is darkness. In verse one, the psalm says, day and night, I cry out to you. The author's been praying 
Um, and, and what the author is praying, as he's praying, he's, he's been praying for a long time. And he's in tears, he's crying out. In verse 15 it says, from my youth I've been, ex- I've been afflicted. That's a long time. The writer's been praying, he's in tears, and yet all he gets is silence. And so he's in this kind of world of darkness. He's in this cloud of darkness. Darkness is whether day or night, he's in darkness. It's physical darkness or it's spiritual darkness. It's not clear. The psalmist doesn't let us know what his circumstance is, and yet he's overwhelmed. That's what we know. He's just overwhelmed. Verse two, he cries out. Verse three, my soul is filled with trouble. In other words, I'm consumed. I'm consumed and and I'm lifeless. I'm dying. In verse four, I'm sapped of my strength. Verse five, it's as if God has forgotten me. It's as if God has forgotten about me. I'm cut off. I've been left for dead. Verse six, I'm going through hell. Verse seven, I sense your wrath is crashing against me like a wave after wave after wave. We have no idea what the circumstance is. But because it's unclear, we can apply that psalm generally in any of our circumstances. What does that mean? That's a gift, by the way. What does that mean? There are times when life, when things seem so bad, life is so hard, you can't even get out of bed. It's like darkness. Day and night, you're just drowning in darkness, and you're alone. You're doing it alone. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the circumstance in verse 8, this psalmist has lost everyone in his life. His friends have rejected him. They have abandoned him. Verse 9, he is just overwhelmed but he's going to God, and yet verse 10, he feels left for dead. God is absent from his life. There's no sense of God in his life. There's no sense of God in his situation. Where are you? It's like there's a a black hole in his life, and it's sucking the light out of his life as if the sun had set on his soul. You look earlier in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 28, you have Jacob. Jacob is a famous figure in the Bible, for those of you who are new to the church. Jacob is a deceiver, he's a thief, he's a liar who betrayed his family and so he's on the run for his life. He's lost everything. Remember, back in the ancient times, if you lose your family, you've lost everything and so he's alone and he's out there in the middle of nowhere and a text says that he didn't have a pillow to rest his head on, to go to sleep at night on. It's a, so, he, so what it does is he finds a rock and he uses a rock for a pillow because the sun has set, it's dark. It's as if the sun has set on his life. And so even for this psalmist, that physical darkness is representative of the inner darkness in his life. In Psalm 88, this man is not like Jacob. He's doing all the right things. He's going to God, and he's praying, and he's crying out. This is Heman. He is an Ezraite. In other words, he's a religious person. He's a good person. But he doesn't experience, he doesn't sense the presence of God. Have you been there? I mean, that that is a real thing. That means you can go to church. You can grow up in the church. You can worship powerfully fervently you can be a, a, just a praying person fervently you can be seeking god thirsting for god wanting god desiring god and yet what you're met with is darkness silence for a long period of time it's really really hard and yet it's true that's what it means to be in darkness well what do you learn from it a few things one see 
when you suffer real trauma, real trauma, we tend to be encapsulated by that trauma. That's what trauma is, the very nature of trauma. It's, it's debilitating your life. So you process your entire life through the lens of that trauma. If you look at this psalm, the man, he doesn't mince any words. He doesn't control his emotions. There's no sense of formality in his prayer. In that last third of the psalm, it just absolutely crescendos. It just kind of builds. And it's almost like in that last third of the psalm, he's staring God down. Verse 10, do you show your wonders to the dead? Do the dead rise up and praise you? In verse 11, is your love declared in the grave? Is your faithfulness declared in destruction? Wow, I mean, that's powerful. Verse 12, are your wonders known in a place of darkness? Were your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? In other words, he's saying, you're supposed to be loving. You promised you would be there. You're supposed to be faithful and powerful to help and save, and yet I'm dead, my life is ruined, I'm in hell. I mean, do you even want praise? Because dead people, they can't praise you. You know that. Well, then where are you? That's really, I mean, if you want to take a layman's interpretation of Psalm 88, that's what he's saying. It's powerful. In fact, verses 13 to 15, he says, I've been praying for a while, and yet you have hidden your face from me. To hide your face is to cut off intimacy in the Old Testament. I mean, we understand that, spouses, when you get into arguments with your spouse, what do you do? I mean, that, your spouse says something just incredible to you, and you, what do you do? <sighs> you turn your head, you turn your what? We just, I can't stand to look at you. You're cutting off intimacy, right? It's why the psalmist, and in the Old Testament, we constantly hear, let me see your face. What the psalmist is asking for is intimacy with God. In verse 15, since since I'm, I've been young, I've suffered without relief. I've only known terror and despair. How does the psalm end? Verse 18, darkness is my closest friend. In the Hebrew, the psalm actually poetically ends with the word darkness. So you have 18 verses beautifully crafted, and the last word is darkness. The word darkness appears three times in this passage. In verse 6, 12, and 18. Incidentally, I mean, if you break out the psalm into three parts, they are three acts of the psalm. And what that means here is that throughout every act of this author's life, every stage of his reflections, he is surrounded by darkness. His life is characterized by darkness in his life. You've got to ask, why is this passage here? Why is it in the Bible? And you're going to be thankful you're going to be thankful that it is because if you think about it, if you look here, as dark as things are, as hopeless as they may seem for this man, he's still praying. He's still going to God. This psalm is in the Bible. That means that God is hearing this man, and he's actually teaching us to pray like this man, in a sense. Here's why it's important. Think about this. When you pray... If you've grown up in the church and you pray, people tend to have different levels of formality with God, different levels of comfort. Not everyone is like that. I mean, there are some people, uh, the moment that they start to pray, I mean, they could be talking just filthy with you, and then all of a sudden, when they get to prayer mode, it's like they, st they start breaking out the old English. You know what I'm talking about, right? That's how it's like. 
we come before you. <laughs> no one talks like that in real life, right? Um, a lot of us, uh, we don't even refer to God as our father. How many of you pray? You don't even refer to God as your father. The Muslim Quran has 400 words for God. 400 words for God. Not a single word refers to God as father. Now, many of you, you've grown up in an Eastern context, and you understand we don't even address our parents with informality a lot of times, right? And the reason why is because we still look at God and we say he is the king, he is the ruler, and so kings and rulers, I need to clean up my act before I, I talk to God. Look, if you're a Christian, you need to know this. You are God's child. That means, I mean, this psalm is raw. This psalm is real. And in the Bible, <clears throat> this psalm being in the Bible, it means that God has heard this man. God is honoring this man in a sense, even though the man is talking filthy with God. There is no level of formality. If you look at the actual language, it dis disrupts formality in the Bible. What does that mean? It means you don't just wait until your life is cleaned up, until things have gotten better, life is straightened out before you go to God. God wants you to go to him exhausted and broken, maybe covered in your guilt, maybe covered in tears, in the mess, not after the mess, not before the mess, in the mess. When you're suffering, when you're bitter, when you're anxious, don't wait to sanitize yourself. Don't wait to clean up your language. You, sometimes you just can't. And so what we do is because we can't clean up our feelings and our experience, we can't clean up our language or our talk, we just don't go to God at all. He wants you to come to him. He sees you. He knows you. He relates with you. Nobody understands suffering like the God who sent his own son to die for his people and for their sins. He identifies with his people. He understands, and he's gracious. In ancient times, <clears throat> when you're desperate, what do you do? You covered yourself in sackcloth and ashes. You know what that means? It means I am nothing. You fall to the ground. You say, I am nothing. I'm as good as dead. I am lower than, than anyone. And so you prostrate yourself on the ground, and that's how they prayed. You see that? And yet our God is attracted, not to that sanitized version of you, but the one who's broken because God works through brokenness. God has chosen to work through that brokenness. But secondly, when you come to God, you need to come for God. One of the most difficult things about being a Christian is that as you're coming to faith in Jesus, you recognize that there's lots of parts of the Bible you just don't like. You may not even agree with it at first. You look at it and you're like, I don't really like that. It's offensive to me, we say. We often say that. There's a, some parts, I mean, and then there are things that you really, really want in your life, but then God says, no, you can't. There's a silence. You're praying for things, and these are good things, not necessarily bad things. You're praying for things, and God says, no. You see? There's silence. And it's not necessarily because of something bad. What do you see here? God, I'm lonely. That's what he's saying. God, I'm afflicted. I need healing. I need relief. I need comfort. I need friends. None of those things are bad things, and yet God is silent, he says. God is silent. Why? You see? A God that is a product of your desires, 
a God that never says no, that kind of God can never be a God that changes you. That kind of God can never be a God that shapes you. A God that doesn't argue with you, a God that doesn't counter you, that kind of God will never shape you. That kind of God will never truly be able to help you when you are down on yourself and you're beating yourself up and you're saying, you're worthless, you're a loser, you, you deserve this. That kind of God will never be able to tell you and counter that either. You see that? That kind of God will never be able to tell you, hey, you need to look at who I am. You see who you are, you need to look at who I am and what I've done. That kind of God will never be able to save you. Often we go to God for things. We want comfort. We want a new job, a shift in direction. Transitions are happening in our lives. We want, we want that relationship. We want that family. We want that home. But wisdom says you need to go to God for God. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you want, it's got to go above that, no matter how you feel. And lastly, now think about this. You know, how do you know then if you're going to God for God versus going to God for things? Because we are, our feelings are always conflicting with each other and they're always changing. So how do you know that you're going to God for God and not going to God for things? And the answer is what? Darkness. Your darkness often reveals, reveals what you're going to God for. Because when you're in darkness, everything about your relationship with God feels like work. Prayer feels like work. Going to church feels like work. Opening up that Bible feels like work. When you're in darkness, especially when you've lost something, you are in sorrow. When God says no to something and he's been saying no for a long time, you don't want to go to God. You don't feel like praying. You don't feel like reading your Bible or worshiping. Why? Because you're not going to God for God. See that? You've been going to God for things. You don't want to give. You know why? Because you've been asking God for things for a long time, and he hasn't given to you. So that desire to go to God to give anything, you don't want to do that. We don't go to God to worship because you want to blame God. You don't go to God for, uh, you know, through community to seek counsel from wise, godly people, older people sometimes, about what you want and what you need, the counsel through God's word. We're going to God for things. How do you know that? It's darkness. When God is silent, when he seems absent from your life, when you, when you pray and you serve, but you're hurting and just broken and you're disoriented, you're in darkness and there are no answers. God is not answering in the moment when you've just lost the comforts of your life, when you've lost things that you love, when you've lost people that you love. In fact, most of us, when you first go to God, when you first come to the church, how do you start? You worship, you pray, you join a community group, you obey, you serve, you give, and things are good, but then the trouble hits. Then the pressure cooker starts, and sometimes it goes on for a while, and you're just in it. You feel it. After a while, you start to do some cost-benefit analysis, and you start to say, well, what am I getting out of any of this? Where is God here? I mean, this is not what I signed up for. Where is God when I've lost this, when I've wanted this? I hear now, in those moments, we tend to hear very loud and clear what God wants of our lives. We say, well, I'm not about that. God wants me to give up my life, but he has never come through for me. That's the breaking point. That's the breaking point. That's it. 
that's the point when you realize you've been going to God for things and not going to God for God. And you say, you know, I'm out. Some of us, we just check out right then and there. We have a large crowd of people who've left the church for a long time coming back into the church today. That's when you should be doubling down on the faithfulness of God. We check out. It's like walking out of a movie when the climax is about to hit. And when the climax is about to hit, it's always at the most dark place in the movie. And you're like, I'm out. (laughs) And we just check out. Is that reasonable? Is that logical? The one person, the one relationship that you can't lose the one relationship, the one person that you need beyond all the other things that we've been praying for is that relationship with God. You see that? Your suffering is like a crucible in which there's extreme pressure, the pressure of suffering, and there's despair, and it reveals areas in your life where you're going to God to use God. I mean, sometimes we think, we assume we're going to God for God, And you realize when that pressure cooker begins, when you're in that crucible and that pressure is just overwhelming, that's when you start to identify areas where you're going to God for things and not going to God for God. And usually it's obvious because you're using God's people as well. By the way, that's called sacrilege when you tend to use the church or use God's people for your own purposes because you're really going to God because they're actually going, you're going to God for other things. There are other things that you really value more than God, and sometimes God is the way to get those things. Otherwise, God is the, God, God is the one that's getting in the way of those things. You see that? But Heman, the Ezraite in this passage, he's different. I mean, he's screaming, and he's crying out in the darkness. He is in a lot of pain oftentimes pitying himself. You see that in this language, there's despair because he's lost everything. If you look at the last verse, there's just darkness, but still he goes to God. He's lost everything. God is all he's got. That's what he does. He goes to God. Maybe he's mad at God. Maybe he's confused at God. This psalm, he says, well, then say it. That's what this psalm is teaching us. Then say it. Then pray it. But you gotta hang on. You gotta hold on. Why? Because even if you've lost everything, even if you've lost all control in your life, God has never lost control. You feel like you've had control. That's the mirage. You never had control. God is still God. And now you know if you've been near God because you're serving him or serving yourself. And this is really the beginning of real maturity. Real maturity begins when you start to realize that That's when you really start to become intimate with God because you realize your view of God has been wrong all along, your view of yourself. You've overestimated your view of yourself. You've underestimated the wisdom of God. Suffering is a crucible. It is dark. There's a lot of heat. There's a lot of pressure. And, and, I mean, there is extreme, if you look at it in this song, there's extreme darkness, extreme heat, extreme pressure, and that pressure will either pulverize you or it's going to shape you into a diamond of enduring poise and enduring character. Some of us, we pray for poise. We say, Lord, give me courage. Give me poise. Give me endurance. And then we question, why am I suffering? What do you think God is doing? He's answering that prayer. That darkness is a training grounds That darkness is an incubator 
for poise and courage and humility and righteousness. You see that? Remember the movie Braveheart? Braveheart came out in 1995, uh, won a ton of Academy Awards. In this movie, you have young William Wallace. This is before the movie even really gets going. You have young William Wallace, and, and he sees his father and brother. They're going off to war. They're going off to fight, and uh, they eventually come back dead. And William Wallace, he's this little boy. He gets his little toy sword, and he says, I want to go. I want to go. I want to fight. He wants to fight with his brothers. He wants to fight with his father. He wants to stand by them. And his father says, no, you can't go. And he says, I can fight. But the father says, I know. I know you can fight. But it's your wits. It's our wits that make us men. How do you develop those wits? How do you develop that courage? It's through darkness. It's through that darkness. It's through that pain. How do you apply that? How do you apply those, these lessons that, are, that seem so disparate in the psalm into our lives? Let's face it. Real darkness always feels, if you're in real darkness, it always feels like it's curtains, like it's lights out. Real darkness feels like it's the end. The sun has set on your soul, on your life. There's no light. The psalmist says, I'm abandoned, I'm rejected, I'm left for dead. And yet, he really wasn't. God is present. God has heard. This passage is there. He's in the Bible. You see that? Heman was actually a leader of musicians and songwriters. In other words, he was like a worship leader. Appointed by King David. He was a great man, and he wrote this psalm. He was a leader among God's people, and he wrote this psalm. What does that tell you? No one. Doesn't matter how long you've been here. Doesn't matter how long you've been going to church. Doesn't matter how much of the Bible you know. Doesn't matter what you've written, what you've accomplished, because Heman was a great man. No one is immune to suffering. Suffering is an equal opportunity. Equal opportunity uh, evil, in a sense. It's going to come at you no matter who you are, no matter what you have, no matter what you've accomplished or not. Suffering is going to come at you, but it also means, on the other hand, that all the while Heman is serving, he was struggling. He was living with tremendous darkness, and yet he was faithful. He was constantly just going at it. He was struggling in his life. You see that? And even though he felt abandoned, God was present in his life. God was active in his life, working through Heman. He was hanging on throughout to encourage God's people throughout a lifetime to sing praises to God. And even now, human's darkness has become song, a song that has shaped thousands of people, millions of people for thousands of years. God never abandoned human. God was working through human to encourage his people. You see that? And if you remember the lessons from human suffering and apply it into your own darkness, you will trust that God has not abandoned you. How do you trust that? On the cross, what do you see? On the cross, there was actual darkness. There was a physical darkness that came over the entire land where Jesus Christ himself was crucified. And on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he saying? What was he experiencing in that moment? He's saying this is the greatest darkness. This is the ultimate darkness. It's as if the sun has truly set on my soul. You see, Heman, he suffered just a taste of that darkness. 
and he thought his life was over. I'm just suffering just a morsel of that darkness. And he said, my life is over. Where are you, God? But God made human great through that suffering. We are still talking about human today. And he still went to God, and God was still there. God was still present for him. But Jesus Christ on the cross, he received the ultimate darkness. The ultimate darkness that human just merely tasted. Heman said, I'm cut off. I'm in the depths. I'm experiencing your wrath. You've taken away my closest friends. Well, Jesus Christ, he was betrayed by his friends. Jesus Christ was cut off from the land of the living. The wrath of God on the cross was pouring out on Jesus as a penalty for our sins. And so when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I'm getting everything that my people deserve. Not just the physical darkness, not just momentary darkness, but I am truly in the darkest depths. I am truly in hell because I've been completely separated from the Father. I've been forensically separated from the Father. I've been forsaken. To be separated from the Father, to be separated from God is hell. And yet do you see, even Jesus, as God has abandoned him, is still praying to God. That was his trust. That was Jesus Christ still hanging on. He has lost everything truly. The center, the core, he did, the son didn't just set on his soul. His soul was broken, it was torn as the father has departed from him. He has lost everything, intimacy with the father, and yet he still prays, my God, my God. In other words, to the end, to the end, Jesus went to God for more of God. You see that? If Jesus Christ would process the ultimate hell, through the word of God. He was quoting Psalm 22. That's what he was doing. If Jesus Christ will process the ultimate hell through the word of God and through prayer, then you can process your lesser hells. A lesser hell. Because that hell, the hell, any hell that we go through will never truly ruin us in the end. That means we can process it through the word of God knowing that God will never abandon his people. God would never abandon nor reject nor leave us for dead because Jesus Christ was left for dead on the cross. To the end, Jesus went to the cross and he suffered and bled and died and yet he still went to God for more of God even after he lost God. To the end, Jesus suffered. As he was suffering, he was processing hell through prayer and yet he was still forsaken by God. Why? So that you can go to God. Jesus Christ received the full wrath of God on the cross so that you can only taste. You will just receive a mere taste of that rejection, a mere taste of that loneliness. And yet you will never be truly abandoned, which means that God is present and using that suffering not to ruin you or harm you, but to build a diamond out of you, a diamond of poise and courage out of you. Jesus Christ received the ultimate rejection, the ultimate wrath, so we received the love of God, ultimate forgiveness, the faithfulness of God, the presence of God. He bled and he died for you, and he took on the ultimate darkness in his suffering as his darkness so he could be present then in your darkness. That's how you, we know that God is not out to get you in your suffering. He's using your suffering to turn it on its own head because he has defeated suffering. Suffering with a capital S once and for all. 
That means that because he was silent on the cross, when he is silent to you, it's more because he's actually present and actively working through that silence to make you great. Heman says, darkness is my only friend. And in a sense, because of the gospel, because of the gospel, he turns the meaning of that phrase upside down. Darkness actually can really be your friend because God is using the darkest moments of our lives to make us like Jesus, to make us great. Come to God for God. We have an opportunity every week after we hear the word so we can process life through the word, respond to God in song, process it in prayer again. In our deepest depths, we can meet Jesus in our hells, in our suffering through prayer and be real with him. You have an opportunity today to do that because there's no place that Jesus wouldn't go. He has proved it by going to the cross. There's no place that Jesus didn't go for you. There's the hope. Psalm 88 ends without any hope. You can tack on the ending in your response. You can tack on the ending. There's the hope that you can add into the end of this psalm to complete it once and for all because Jesus Christ has finished it. Do you know? Psalm 22. Jesus Christ is on the cross and he's, he's reciting Psalm 22. And he's living out and fulfilling Psalm 22. And so what you see is in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 15, he says, I am, I am essentially, my throat sticks to the roof of my mouth. I'm dried up. In other words, he's saying, I am thirsty. Psalm, at the end of the psalm, he says, my God, you have done it. Another way of saying that is, it is finished. Jesus Christ processing his deepest hell, his deepest suffering. As he's fulfilling the psalm, he's reciting God's word and trusting in his promise. We can do the same. You can do that for your own suffering and our lesser hells. Will you do that? Let's pray.